do turn in your Bibles to Ephesians and chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And while you do that, um, just uh, a quick reminder uh, of uh, the absence of my fellow pastor, Pastor Suvale. He's uh, still in Ethiopia. Uh, we were joking in the eldership WhatsApp group that is looking for the eunuchs, Ethiopian eunuchs family. Uh, that's look like looking for a dog's horn since uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was castrated. He's not likely to have family. Uh, but that's a joke. He's uh, uh, busy meeting with uh, some three uh, new church plants that have sent an SOS call to Kabwata Baptist Church that we may uh, be able to assist them as we've assisted so many others around the continent. Uh, by yesterday, he had clocked no less than 1,500 kilometers of traveling around uh, Ethiopia. So you can well imagine uh, what he's been up to. The Lord willing, he returns uh, at the beginning of uh, this week uh, with good news. At least we've been updated within the eldership, but do also remember him as he travels back, as other people will also be coming into Zambia uh, for the Reformed Conference as well. Yes, so back to um, Ephesians chapter 3. I just didn't want us to, in the midst of all these announcements, forget the man we have sent out to Ethiopia. We will read the first seven verses of uh, Ephesians chapter 3. The first seven verses. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then verse 7 that we are considering together this morning. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Well, brethren, we are back to celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ and that's been our theme as we are plodding along, making our way through 
this letter of Paul to the Ephesians, a letter written from a prison cell. It's very easy for you to lose the sense of the fact that this was being written in very dire circumstances. Well, we've seen, as we are now in chapter 3, the way in which the Apostle Paul makes a, a quick detour from his initial line of thought, which was meant to be that of praying. But just before he would say that he is about to kneel, he remembers that in describing himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, there was need to open that up a little bit so that by the time that is fully opened up, these be beloved brethren are not feeling sorry for this prisoner, but rather that they are acknowledging that this is according to plan. And so he takes a bit of a detour and then ends in verse 13 with the words, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. So as you hear me speaking about being in prison, don't be dejected because don't worry. This is God glorifying himself through what he is doing in the gospel. Well, that's where Paul basically begins and takes quite a few verses. And what we are doing then is spending that time with him, digging up what it is that he is primarily thinking about. We have noted already that uh, he spoke of himself as somebody who has been given a stewardship of God's grace. And we mentioned the fact that this is referring to the gifts and abilities that God had given to him, and he was a steward of those, which we all are of the gifts that the Lord has given us. The main issue there, however, is that uh, he had his, we have ours. And in his case, he is saying that this is the stewardship that God has given to me, and he has opened it up for us. We saw that, first of all, it is the revelation that was given to him, as he has already written, and we celebrated that together. It wasn't just to him, there were two categories of uh, Christians that were being given such revelations. They were the apostles and then the New Testament prophets. Those are the only two that he speaks about here. He says in verse 4 and 5, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, that is the revelation he had been speaking about, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So God, the Holy Spirit, had specifically revealed 
Christian tenets or Christian truth to these two categories of gifted individuals, the apostles and the prophets. So that was the first aspect of this stewardship. The second aspect that we will spend a lot more time on in verse 7 downwards is the proclamation of this same truth. And I want us to just spend a little bit of time there as we begin with verse 7. Look at verse 7 for a moment. He says there, of this gospel, what gospel? It is the same one that he has received. It is the same one that he has described in the previous two chapters. This same gospel, this good news that is around the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is saying that of this specific message, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. What is he talking about there? It seems to me it's an all-important truth which if we ever lose sight of, we are weakening ourselves as a Christian church. We are beginning to start doing so many other things rather than that which we are primarily about as God's people. In other words, what we are learning here is how God brings the unsearchable riches of Christ that he has revealed how he now brings them to the rest of the world. He has not revealed to the rest of the world. He has revealed to these apostles and these prophets. But how is that then to be known by the rest of the world? Well, Paul is saying here that God has not left it to chance. He's not left it to, to human initiative. He's actually involved in calling individuals to take that message to those who desperately need to hear it. The prosperity of the church hangs, therefore, on our proper understanding of this reality. Hence the title of my sermon, The Making of a Gospel Minister. In fact, I really wrestled because the heart of my message is the making of gospel ministers in plural. But because in the text, Paul is primarily talking about himself, I thought, let me leave the title as it stands. But I hope you will see that as I open it up further, I want us not to limit ourselves to the first century. I want us to see that this is the way God continues to spread this same message century after century all the way to its final closure. Well, let's see how he does it. First of all, 
in bringing the unsearchable riches of Christ to the world, God makes gospel ministers. God makes gospel ministers. This is what the Apostle Paul says about himself in chapter 7 and verse, um, sorry, verse 7, first part. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. He, he, he did not volunteer. He didn't think this was a, a good idea. And therefore, let me spend the rest of my life also doing this. There are some benefits that are to accrue towards me. He is very clear about the fact that this is something that was done to him. I was made a minister. We know who did it. It was God who did it, and we'll learn a little bit more about that. The phrase that we are, it was once popular, I, I rarely ever hear it these days, comes from here. And it used to be a phrase when you uh, hear a, a pastor introducing himself, he would say, I am a gospel minister. And that's really where it is coming from here. I'm a gospel minister. Uh, in uh, Zambia, we normally use a different phrase, which is, I suppose, government has thrown it upon us. It's in our passports, minister of religion. It's a little more Jewishless, minister of religion. Uh, you could be an Islamic religion minister in that sense. But this is where it comes from, minister of the gospel. What's this phrase, minister? about. It's simply the word servant. That's all it is. It's, in fact, it's the word from which we get the phrase deacon. That's all it is. It, he is a servant of this gospel. And in a sense, we can say that's what we all are, isn't it? We, we serve. So we, we must be servants of the gospel. But no. Paul is, is is distinguishing himself from, from the rest of us. He is basically saying there is something special and unique about him with respect to the other Ephesians or the Ephesians that he was writing to. Otherwise, it would be pointless for him to be saying, this is who I am, if that's what everybody else is. It's like me coming to you and saying, hey, guess what? I'm breathing. If you say, yeah, but who's dead here? All of us are breathing. What it really means there is that there was an appointment. There was a call. It's the way in which we speak about the phrase servant in English, but it's really the word deacon in this church. We are all servants in a sense, isn't it? We are servants. We are. But no. The deacons in this church have been appointed. And the Lord willing in two weeks' time will be appointing another three 
to enter into that position. And those, when they are finally together, there should be about 10 of them, will be able to say, we were made deacons. We were made servants. There is something that has been done that is a calling to which we've simply responded and we've been ushered into this place where we now have a responsibility. And it is in that sense that Paul is saying here, I am a gospel minister. Of this gospel, I was made a servant. We all know who a servant is. It's not simply somebody who has served. It is somebody who has therefore been brought under another master or Lord who is under instructions and they need to make sure that that is what they are carrying out. It's their responsibility. Now, when we apply to the gospel, we begin to realize that yes, there is something distinct. There's something about Paul that is not true about the rest of us with respect to the work of the gospel. And that's what Paul is making known as he brings in this appeal. Of this gospel, this is what has happened to me. I have been made a minister. There is a call that has come to my life, and that call has ushered me into this realm. There is a reality that is there that I cannot deny by which I am now living. I am a minister of this gospel. But let's quickly hurry on. God makes gospel ministers, first of all, by giving them peculiar gifts of grace for this work. By giving them peculiar gifts of grace for this work. This is what Paul goes on to say about himself. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. Back to our text, listen to this. According to the gift of God's grace. According to the gift of God's grace. I've already made the point that this is not Paul saying, I am or only the apostles and prophets have this gift of God's grace. In a sense, as long as we are Christian, God has given us gifts, and those gifts are gifts of grace. We underlined all that. We went to Romans chapter 12, and we saw that, where Paul is saying, each one of us must be responsible for that gift of grace that has been given to us. But what Paul is saying is this, that that same gift of grace comes in its various forms. For me, Paul is saying, it has come as somebody who has been put together by God, as it were, for this 
specific calling. That's how it has come. It may be different for you, each one of us. But for me, according to God's grace, this is the way it has manifested itself. According to the gift of God's grace. Now, for him, there are at least two ways in which we can see this coming through. Well, first of all, it is the revelation that was given to him. He's already spoken about it earlier, isn't it? Chapter 3 and uh, verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. It's already God's grace or ability that was given to him. It's not given to the rest of us. So we have our own. He has that which he has received. But let me apply this generally because remember what I said. If we're concentrating on Paul, our minds will remain in the first century. How are we to understand this in an ongoing way? Well, what Paul says can be applied to all true gospel ministers even today. Not so much in terms of hearing God's voice speaking to us about gospel content, but definitely in terms of having an uncommon level of biblical and doctrinal understanding of the gospel. That's the first thing. The unusual level, even within the context of believers, that people can be able to say that when this person opens his mouth, we've got a lot to learn. It's as if we don't read the same Bible. There is a higher level, a greater clarity of knowledge that the person has. But secondly, it's not just in terms of the person's knowledge, but as I've already hinted, it is also in terms of the person's ability to articulate it, to explain this thing, that we are able to sit there and say, we have genuinely learned and grown and appreciated God's truth as this person has explained this same message to us. And in a way, again, that's what Paul was saying earlier. Let's go back to verse 3. He says there, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, he said, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. In other words, it's not something I'm, I'm sort of claiming to myself, and then you're all sort of scratching your head saying, mm, you. No, it's plain. It's there for you to see. Not only what I know, 
but my capacity to share it in such a way that you can benefit. And in this case, it's not just to saints, but also to sinners, to those who are outside Christ. Because remember, the gospel is being meant to reach out to the world, to bring men and women who are lost in sin, to embrace Christ as Savior in genuine repentance and genuine faith. So the capacity to, to bring those high doctrines of who God is and and how fallen we are, and, and the glorious Savior that has been sent, and, and the way in which he has brought about our salvation in his redemptive, atoning work, and, and bring it all down to the, the simple response of repentance and faith. That ability to bring that to the unbeliever, is a gift of God's grace. And brethren, we should be grateful to God for this. Because if Paul was saying it was his own abilities because he went to university and gathered a few degrees and so on, yeah, we may despair. But what he's saying is this. This is God's doing. This is because God is on an agenda. An agenda of revealing himself to lost sinners. To bring them in. Generation after generation. In an unfolding way. He makes gospel preachers. And doesn't just make them by revealing capacity-wise... The, to them so that they know but it is also in terms of equipping them, giving them the capacity to articulate what they know. We should thank God for that because how can we know and celebrate the unsearchable riches of Christ if God didn't do this? How? Where would we be if we didn't have those that God specifically calls and equips to be gospel preachers? Where would we be? The Christian faith would be ten times lower than it is today. But here it is. Thank God he's doing. Thank God he's doing it. Individuals like Paul may have already gone with their peculiar form of this gift of God's grace. But God continues to call and equip his servants year after year, generation after generation, until he returns. But let me hurry on to the third part. Because that brings all this together. 
these gospel ministering gifts are activated not by human but by God's effectual power. Let me say it again. These gospel ministering gifts are activated not by human but by God's effectual power. Let's read verse 7 once again. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. We've looked at that. But look at this. Which was given me by the working of his power. Again, as we said earlier, with respect to various other gifts, it's God who works within us, both to will and to do according to his pleasure. Well, it is precisely the same with all gospel ministers. It's not because we set them apart or ordain them or install them into office that we do anything to them. Not at all. It is because the Lord who calls them sets them going long before we are even interested in them. Look at the way it was with Paul. You remember? The Lord arrested him on the road to Damascus. And he says, he, he went away for about three years. Nobody among the top people in the church even knew where he was. But listen to this. People were just hearing that this man who tried to destroy the church is actually preaching the same message he once tried to destroy. What is it that was moving him? It was this effective, effectual power of God that was therefore inspiring him to already begin serving the Lord where he was in Arabia. In Galatians, he later on reports that after a number of years, he just thought, you know what? Mm -mm. As we say in Bemba, let me go and report myself in Jerusalem. So that just in case I've been preaching something that is heretical, let me just go and say, guys, you know, this is what I've been preaching. This is my message. And he said, I went there. I met with Peter, James, John, he said, those that claim to be leaders, he says, I met with them. And I put before them the gospel I had already been preaching. And after they listened, they shook my hand and said, brother, we can see God's hand upon you in a peculiar way. And it is this, God has called you to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Exactly the same way that he has equipped Peter to preach the gospel to the Jews. 
And Paul says, I was grateful for that confirmation. May I suggest to you that that's what we do when we are ordaining people to send them out. We are simply confirming that which we have seen upon their lives. But let's come back to this because that's exactly the way it happens with respect to ministers of the gospel. When God is dealing with them, from the time of their conversion, from the time God is already calling them, you can't miss it. First of all, you won't miss it in the family circle because there they are already beginning to minister. Before long, it spreads out into their friendship circles. They begin to minister even there. It spreads out if they're in school or in their workplace. It begins to spread out even there as they are preaching the gospel. Before you know it, it's spreading out in the neighborhood. They are preaching the gospel. And if they are part of a church context, again, it won't be long before they have fitted themselves into one form of ministry or the other. And before you know it, they are there in full swing, leading this outreach there, leading that outreach there, leading this and leading that for gospel enterprises. They are not sitting waiting to be appointed. No. There is an energy in their souls that you cannot sit upon. What is that energy? This effectual power of God that is being spoken about here. Before you know it, they're in the schools. They're in the colleges. They're in the universities. They are in the, the play parks. They are in the... Name it! Whenever they can have the spare time, they are there. There is a dynamo in their souls that cannot be quenched. And you soon begin to hear their names popping up in baptismal testimonies. As people are getting converted, you start hearing their names consistently, and you begin to ask yourselves, aren't we onto something here? What is it that's driving this otherwise young person who's got so many other responsibilities to have a heart for the gospel and a heart for souls. It is this, the working of God's power. May I also suggest that this God's power gives these individuals a higher godliness among their peers. It is what often causes their friends to say to them, Mwana, there's something about your life. 
There is a higher thirst for godliness. There is a, a hunger to be more like Christ that causes the peers to respect this person. To want to even go for counseling to a friend. Someone they've grown up with. What is it? May I suggest to you that it is God working in this person's soul by his power preparing him for this level of leadership that inevitably comes with this call. And this manifests itself in an unusual degree of godliness. Coupled with that is also an unusual degree of deadness to the world. Deadness to the world. Again, it's in grown degree. Because while everybody else is seeing that if I can just climb to, to that ladder, whether it's corporate ladder or, or financial ladder or, or material ladder or whatever other ladders they might be, it might be romantic lovers and ladder and so on, many ladders. Somehow, in this soul, there is but one ladder. Souls, souls, souls for Christ. That's the ladder that matters the most and causes a blindness to so many other things that so many peers, Christian brothers and sisters, and I want to say there's nothing wrong with those ladders, each one according to his grace. But such individuals are dead. Dead. Yes. Dead. Sorry, my. But let's go on. Because I've got one more about this energy. No, no, two more. This energizes them to keep going without supervision. It keeps them going without supervision. They don't need other people over them to come and see, are you still doing the work we sent you to go and do? I want to repeat, friends, that if you claim to be called to the ministry and you need people to supervise you, quit and go and start selling bananas in the market. God hasn't called you. That dynamo has not been set ablaze. When the God calls you to be a gospel minister, when he makes you such, may I suggest to you that that's what makes such individuals quit their jobs. Yes. They quit.
quit their jobs. You see, this guy is crazy. Look, you know, his future was made. No, there is a dynamo that says there is work to be done, there are souls to be brought into the kingdom. I have been given the apparatus, this glorious gospel. I must do it. I must do it. And therefore, you don't need to be sending managers and, and assistant managers and supervisors and uh, you know, auditors and I don't know who else we have to put around them. Just make sure that they are doing the work. You don't need that. Because the dynamo is in the soul. And then lastly, it is this energy that gives them ministerial fruitfulness. Ministerial fruitfulness. Such individuals, friends, are going to preach until they die souls don't come to Christ. They will put in their everything. Follow them into their closet at night and you hear them weeping before God year after year after year. Oh God, how much longer should I preach without you finally owning my labors and encouraging me with Ruth, how long? You will hear them weeping. Let me quickly take you to Colossians chapter 1. It's a church that Paul never ministered to physically. But everything I have just said to you is found in these words. Everything. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 21 to the end of the chapter. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And Paul enters into this topic. Which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Exactly what we have just been listening to. Listen to this. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. There we are. He's not in a pity party. Look at what has now happened to me. People don't care about me. What? Uh-uh. He is rejoicing in that suffering for your sake. And in, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister. There it is again. According to the stewardship from God 
that was given to me for you, which again we have seen over and over again. Well, there it is. To make the word of God fully known. We've seen this. We'll see it again next week. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. We've seen that. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And all he means by that is this, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Which is in Christ Jesus, rather, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Listen to this. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And to that I say, Amen. Friends, that's what being a minister of the gospel is. It ends with this recognizable fruit, this inevitable evidence, which first of all makes the person himself say, Lord, thank you, thank you, that you've shown me some evidence that I wasn't mad when I took on this route. Here is the fruit. This is the evidence. There's no way that in human energy this could have been produced. This is your doing, O oh Lord. I praise you. I praise you. I praise you. But it's also the evidence for those who are looking at the person. Other people may doubt. Like Paul says concerning the Corinthians when people were doubting him. He says, <laughs> in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, other people may doubt that I'm an apostle, but not you. You are the fruit of my ministry. I may not be an apostle to other people, but surely I'm an apostle to you. You have evidence that there's been this peculiar gift of grace Upon my soul. I labored in Corinth and you are the fruit. That there has been divine energy working in me. Brethren, it is because of this. Let me say it again. It is because of this that God continues to bring the unsearchable regions of Christ generation after generation to the world. You read church history, and that's what you will find chapter after chapter after chapter. In fact, I often joke that church history is a wrong term. It's a wrong term. Because when you read church history, you're not reading the history of the church. Trust me, I studied it. You are reading the history of preachers, gospel preachers, 
name after name after name after name. This is where they went. This is where they labored. And then the next generation, God raised up these. They labored here. And therefore, the, the church spread in that direction. And then God raised up these. And they took it there and so on. It's gospel preacher after gospel preacher to today. Try and read it. You won't find, you know, Kawata Baptist Church had 400 members. <laughs> no. It's the history of ministers of the gospel raised by God to take this unsearchable riches of Christ further afield in God's world. May I say, as I said at the beginning, the prosperity of the church hangs on our proper understanding of this. And thankfully, I'm preaching in a church whose elders strongly believe this. And therefore, I can preach with absolute freedom because you can't miss it. The priority of KBC in terms of finances, in terms of whatever it might be, has been clearly at this spear tip of the work of ministry. That's one reason why we have two pastors. That's one reason why we, we put so much money into ministerial training. More than any other training that the church is doing. That's the reason why we put so much money and time and priority into pastoral internship programs. I mean, it's madness, isn't it? That we, we, we've, we've bought three houses <laughs> to occupy people we don't even know. And we even rent a fourth one. So there are four houses right now. Which ministry has that kind of advantage? Not even one house. Why? It is this recognition. That's why we're putting priorities and finances into missions work. Why? It is to unleash gospel preachers upon the world. It is in recognition that this is what God does. And it is worth putting everything where God has put everything. So, two quick words as I close. First of all, do you attend a church where there is a true gospel ministry? Do you? Here's my appeal. And take it from my heart. Don't take it for granted. It's a gift of God's grace. Don't take it for granted. It's a gift of God's grace. But let me add, Make maximum use of that ministry. 
first of all, by making sure you heed that gospel in repentance and faith. Because it will be held against you on the final day of judgment. When God says, this is what I gifted you with. It was not an accident that there was that voice, that clear voice that was heralding this message to you. Week after week after week, it was no accident. But you closed your heart, you stubbornly went your own way, you refused to listen, you must pay for it for all eternity. Don't drag God's gift in the mud. Don't do that. If God has given you that special opportunity, be grateful. And come to him in genuine repentance and faith. It's an act of God. But lastly, and with this I must be. Let's pray for, for true gospel ministry. I am willing to be proved wrong. But 19 out of 20 people who claim to be gospel ministers are not. They're just jobless guys who have seen an opportunity and entered it. And that's the reason why all week they spend loitering in town the whole week. As someone has said, throw a stone into Cairo Road. You might hit a street kid or a pastor, one of the two. And our nation continues to decline and keep getting worse because of half-converted cowboys who have invaded this category. And we're not just blaming them. We're putting the blame on parents as well. Because the attitude is, well, you know, I've got uh, three or four sons, and, you know, three are very intelligent. I think this one will be a doctor. Yeah, I think so. Who are you? John, lawyer. Uh, Chris is also brilliant. I think he'll be an engineer. Yeah. I've been a dick. Maybe we'll pass them, eh? Yes. It's parents themselves who actually betray that reality. And maybe there he might survive. And when someone who is a truly brilliant child in the home says, I'm sensing God's call to the ministry, it's Christian parents themselves who say, no, no, don't. Why? You suffer. And yet Paul is saying, it's for your glory. 
And I should pay this price. It's for your glory. All I'm saying, brethren, is we desperately need to refocus our thinking about the making of a gospel minister. We need to change. We need to become more biblical, more spiritual. We need to, to see what Paul is talking about here and pray and pray and pray that these are the true gospel ministers that God will give to us in our generation. And may God hear our cry. Amen.